Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Anna Fishson, your host, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Manya Steinkohler and Patricia Garavici about their edited volume, Lacan on Madness. Madness, yes, you can't. Published by Rutledge in 2015. So first, I'm going to introduce them briefly. Uh, Manya Steinkohler is a psychoanalyst and professor of English at Borough of Manhattan Community College. She's a member of Aprecou Psychoanalytic Association in New York and Espace Analytique in Paris and works periodically at Barthélemy Durand uh, Psychiatric Hospital in Paris. Manya is on the editorial committee of The Candidate. Um, she's organized some great conferences uh, in recent years, among them uh, Psychoanalysis on Ice with Michael Garfinkel in Reykjavik in 2014, on Violence, Civilization, and Its Bliss Contents with Vanessa Sinclair, which I intended. It was a fantastic conference. Um, on Laughter in 2013, and The Art of Madness in 2012, um, from which uh, I think the present volume, at least partly, at least partly inspired the present uh, volume. So congratulations, Manya. I know how, uh, how, much, these, um, how much work these conferences are. Uh, so she's also written many articles and papers on the voice, opera, and psychoanalysis, and these are topics near and dear to my heart. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Patricia Garavici is a psychoanalyst at Opera Coup and the co-founder and director of the Philadelphia Lacan Group. Her books include The Puerto Rican Syndrome from 2003, winner of the Gradivo Award and the Boyer Prize, and Please Select Your Gender from the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism by Rutledge 2010. They are both uh, excellent books, and our, our very own Tracy Morgan actually interviewed Patricia on this program about uh, Please Select Your Gender. Okay, so Maya and Patricia, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. So for our audience out there, uh, to minimize uh, confusion, Patricia uh, has the beautiful Argentine or Spanish, Spanish-Argentine accent, and Manya has a lovely... Um, Soprano's voice, and I am. I'm. I'm. I'm, 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 I'm you a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> no, no. Well, I can't hear it because I probably have it too. So, I'm the alto of the group. In case anybody noticed. Okay, so uh, that's the vocal um, categorization. Um, I want to jump right in um, by asking what led you to put together this collection. Maybe, maybe both of you can speak to this um, and. And please, in your response, address the choice to focus on madness, which sounds to me like a, like a cultural or literary term uh, rather than a clinical or specifically even like Lacanian category like, like psychosis. So who wants well, to start? I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. We chose the word madness personally. It was the idea of a... a Question uh, a practice that unhappily has a, um, had a very bad influence, uh, not just in psychoanalytic practice, but in uh, in many forms of clinical practice, uh, 
which is uh, using labels that soon acquire a derogative connotation. And we wanted to rescue the word madness, which indeed has a lot of echoes, uh, literary echoes in culture, but also is a word used in, in common day language and try to rescue the war in all its uh, horrors and glory <laughs> and reclaim madness with this, all its protean qualities, uh, all the mysteries it entails because it's a war that is hard to define, that has been quite controversial. And uh, it allow us to maybe from the very start of the title of the book return to something that we find uh, very essential in uh, Lacan's originality uh, when dealing with what we may call insanity, psychosis, uh, strange behavior, unexplainable phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and madness doesn't, I don't think it really... Um participates in this normal, abnormal kind of dichotomy, or it, it doesn't seem to be implicated in it. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Mania wants to add something. Yeah, maybe also I like, I mean, Patricia's point about the, the idea of mystery was really important to both of us, and it, it, it re, uh, reacquaints us with the mystery of, of, of madness, which is covered over by the pharmacology and diagnosis uh, far mm. too often. So we were kind of excited to have it kind of raise its ugly head in all of its beauty once again, uh, if, if, if you want to, we can mm-hmm. say it like that. Mm-hmm. And Anna, you also wrote an important point, which is that using the word madness that has this sort of difficult border that is permeable, we can put the so-called normal and abnormal together. That's something early on observed by Freud when he noted that the dreams of the sane and the dreams of the insane cannot be differentiated. They are the same dreams and that maybe we could say that if we spend one-third of our lives uh, sleeping, dreaming, hopefully we spend one of our, a third of our lifetime in a state of madness. So that in universalized experience of madness and at the same time, what we try to do in the book is to bring back to madness its clinical specificity because another thing we noted is that um, was a, a shock listening to colleagues, and this is something we, we share a lot in conversation with Mania, uh, there is not a clear notion of a madness or psychosis, and it's very important, I think, clinicians uh, have an ethical responsibility to know what kind of suffering they're dealing with when they work with the patient. And it was important to challenge maybe the the negative aspect in terms of not using a diagnosis as a label, but reclaim also a specificity unique to uh, structure, and that would be the way we will think about madness. Can, and that's, I think, conveying our subtitle. That mm. Well, I was going to ask you about the subtitle next, because I, I love the subtitle, Madness, Yes, You Can't. There's clearly a kind of tongue-in-cheek reference, I think, to Obama's campaign slogan, Yes, We Can, maybe. Uh, but there's also, it seems to me, a reference to foreclosure, Lacan's concept of foreclosure. But maybe you can, you can tell us. 
Money, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly. But, but and it touches, just like the idea of madness, the, the, the subtitle would touch on neurosis and psychosis. Uh, mm. Certainly to foreclosure, because there's a kind of, uh, there's, there is a kind of limitation in the very infinity of the drive. And also, uh, like in, in neurosis, there's, yes, well, yes, but you can't, right? The, the, the function of the name of the father. Right, so we, we tried to, and, and maybe just to go back to what Patricia was saying with the idea of madness and, and the subtitle, our book tries to uh, spread out like a large, uh, like a large swath of clinical, of clinical worlds where we have, you know, an essay on femininity and, and ravage and crazy women and mm-hmm. narcissistic neurosis and psychosis, like psychosis and institutional psychosis. So, so like, uh, uh, like so, and so, and the, even the yes, you can't touching on both of those uh, on, on the structure, neurosis, and psychosis. Right, because certainly some of the chapters do deal with psychosis proper, or or more narrowly, I think, more than madness, the, the broader category, or if you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of how they know, maybe in that yes, you can't. It sounds like a paradox, mm-hmm. but that you cannot go crazy just because you wish to, that there has to be a structural allowance for that to occur. And how they can't, they know, which is another way of uh, referring to Lacan's idea of the name of the father, how the law, the limit, may be inflicted on a subject in a manner that may produce a neurotic or may produce a person we may call psychotic or perverse, and we have essays that will be dealing with the specificity of these structures and, uh, and, and how to approach them, because one interesting thing that we, we discovered in, in the research that led to this book is certain historical resistance to the application, and I, I choose that word purposely, of psychoanalysis to psychosis as if that would be forbidden territory. Mm. And, and it was a shock because in our own clinical experience, that was never the case. Uh, and, and historically, and that's the, the main title of the book, Lacan on Madness, mm-hmm. Lacan's own itinerary. He started uh, working uh, in the field of psychosis and it was his encounter with madness that made him a psychoanalyst. When he was treating a patient that he called Eme, he felt the need to go back and read Freud and read psychoanalysis. He needed psychoanalysis to deal clinically better with a case of a strange a paranoid delusions. That he, it, it, psychoanalysis became essential to the treatment of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I definitely... Uh I want to get back to that as as we talk about maybe some of the individual chapters, particularly the one by uh, Jean Alouche. Is that the right pronunciation? Alouche. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we'll we'll definitely. I want to ask you about that. But before we do, I, I did want to kind of so people uh, can orient themselves. Um, I mean, the audience can be oriented. I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. Uh, it has. Um, 18 chapters total, actually. It was, it's, it's pretty impressive. I'm not going to name everybody, but it's, it's people like Paul Verhaga and Paolo Mieli and Genevieve Morel, Darian Leader, and, you know, the list goes on. And it's divided into three sections, uh, which are Madness Manifest, Encountering Madness. So this is, and this is inside and outside the clinic. Uh, the Method of Madness, Thinking Psychosis. And then the third section, Madness and Creation, uh, Environs of the Whole. That's H-O-L-E. <laughs> So, 
It's interesting because um, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking about my own relationship. As I, as I finished the book and I was thinking about the book's structure and the individual chapters, I, um, I detected a kind of arc, if that's the right word, uh, an underlying plot, which is um, it felt to me like, uh, like madness was, is increasingly linked to creativity in the book and the collection ends on this note. So in other words, um, earlier articles focus on pathology more and, and the later ones link madness to freedom even. So I think in your um, intro, you say, I think you call them uh, positive aspects and potential of madness. Um, uh, would you, was this very conscious? Did you intend for the, or maybe this yeah. is just the way I, I saw it, but it seemed to me that there was this, this movement. Well, maybe we, we wanted to have this. Remember that for Freud, even, the delusion is an attempt at a cure, mm-hmm, right? right? And so, so that, that already there is a kind of metaphor making. You know, he calls it the delusional. Lacan calls it the delusional metaphor. So we wanted to emphasize the creative, um, like the creative making uh, that's at stake in, in madness uh, rather than it's moral or like, oh, no, we have to go in and cure it all the time. It's already a kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great inspirations for my working on this book was my work at Guidana's uh, hospital in Paris where, where, he, he, where you see how exciting uh, a clinical team who, and they're all different. They're Kleinians, Winnicottians, whatever. But they've already, if you, if you grew up in France, you studied Lacan. So even if they have, say, different, uh, slightly different theoretical orientations, they have an understanding of psychosis via Lacan. And you can see, like, um, institutions created on, with those, that kind of theory in mind. And it's really exciting, uh, the work they do. And that was part of the, the inspiration for the book. Yeah. We thought this, I thought, I mean, very passionately, this, this should be something that English readers can experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe to extend a little on what yes. Mania was saying is we felt a need to make very important clinical work, very important theoretical contributions uh, available to an English-speaking audience. Uh, many of the contributors to our collection uh, have written books that are Classics in, uh, in, for instance, Jean-Claude Maldeval, Jean-Alouz, you mentioned, uh, Hector Yankelevich, they have made uh, contributions that are constant references. Uh, and we felt that it was important, Guidanas, uh, original uh, clinical model, is a unique form of uh, treatment uh, that needed to be known because what, what we are discovering, and this is, I think, a unique moment in history in the United States. I have seen in the last last 20, 25 years, I have seen a big change in the clinical field. There is a growing interest in uh, the Lacanian contribution to the clinical practice. There was, of course, when, if we look back 20, 30 years ago, uh, a lot of interest in uh, the Lacanian contributions in, in films of film studies, in uh, uh, women's studies, that there wasn't the same curiosity we see today because there is something very uh, useful and original in the perspective that is granted by uh, an, a structural thinking of psychosis. There is something mm-hmm. new to say, and I think this is a, a way of uh, seeing psychoanalysis 
which I think uh, the history of psychoanalysis, if we look at what was psychoanalysis in the 1950s in the United States and what has become uh, earlier in, this, in, the, in our century, uh, there has been a change, uh, and I've seen the, in very recent years a positive change. It went psychoanalysis from being a practice that was aimed at the very rich and slightly neurotic, <laughs> and now is seen as a practice that could have something uh, helpful to contribute for the not so r rich, but who may have severe diagnosis and something useful could be offered for them. Mm. Well, you know, since we're touching on Lacan's uh, thinking on structure, uh, maybe you can say, one of you, uh, it's it's kind of difficult to do this in, in a, <laughs> you know, and keep it short, but um, maybe one of you can say something about the way uh, his ideas about uh, madness or, or psychosis changed over time, because uh, maybe homing in on like uh, the idea of foreclosure and then his elaboration of maybe Freud's uh, schizophrenia paranoia trajectory or the delusional metaphor, and then leading into the centome of the 1970s. Uh, well, maybe I, I first wanted to add something to Oh, absolutely, the, yeah. The, 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 one of the things our book was aiming at is also the important idea that structure is not illness. Mm. You can be psychotic and not ill. Mm -hmm. right? You could be neurotic and really screwed up. Right. <laughs> so the idea is, it's an, it's an important point, distinction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 so, so and that's one of the reasons we were thinking of the using the word madness uh, to emphasize that, right? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe quickly, and, and Patricia and I can do this together. But Lacan started, you know, with the M.A. and the Papin sisters, and with the imaginary, and in the and, and kind of it's like it's through via psychosis that he can invent the idea of the imaginary in the 30s. Um, in the 50s, it's Lacan's ideas about the symbolic, the signifier, and the name of the father, and the paternal metaphor. And that's when he uses in seminar three the word foreclosure uh, for the first time, um, thinking in in those terms. But that's not the way he's going to keep thinking about psychosis. As he, has, it's like he re psychosis would be the most uh, protean and generative, uh, let's say, if we want to say structure for Lacan's work. It, it changes as he goes on. So in the sixties, he's going to think about the object and the kind of non-separation of the object that takes place in psychosis. And in the seventies, he's thinking about Joyce and the Santum. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's a it's like a long trajectory of thinking about psychosis. And having worked uh, with psychotic patients in a in a hospital, what's interesting is is that you, there's a kind of creativity to the treatment team with all of these different. It's not like one is right. It's like where for one patient, this, the idea of the name of the father might be more useful to think about, and for another, the idea of separation from the object. You know, so it's it's, it's kind of a uh, different ways of thinking that can all be useful clinically. Mm -hmm. uh, and to maybe go back to the last part of the book, the the idea of uh, the symptom, this late invention of Lacan, a different type of symptoms. One that, uh, that's the, what he takes from Joyce, is a type of, mm, of symptom that could help you avoid the destiny of madness. It's a sort mm -hmm. of creative artifice that allows you to live. Mm -hmm. And and so then we can see uh, that at times madness could be a form of invention, and and this is uh, what the, the third section of the book works on. Um, 
many has a, a beautiful contribution, a chapter on schizophrenic writing, that mm-hmm. you could see how, and, and this is, I think, the originality already in Freud and, and taken um, up by Lacan, that uh, in, in psychosis the delusion could be a spontaneous form of cure, which is a paradox if you approach it from a medical perspective in in terms of, at times, um, medications are aimed at uh, eliminating the delusion. So, in a way, you're medicating the cure. Uh-huh. So, right. it's interesting to, to think of the logic also, to, to go back to a point that Mania made, that somebody could be psychotic and not mad all the time. The idea that somebody could be uh, they could have a psychotic structure doesn't mean that it's all the time delusional at times somebody who is extremely rational extremely hmm. normal could be very psychotic and this is something that Darian Lieder who is one of our contributors to the collection hmm. calls quiet psychosis what I, I think we see in everyday life people puzzle that sudden explosions of psychosis uh, I think it's important to, to see that maybe the structure could be the dormant and one of the, the contributions we're trying to make with the book is can we make sense of the, the structure before it explodes in a parking lot in a shooting in a movie theater we, 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 see, we only see it perhaps when it's too late and the idea is that as clinicians perhaps we could see it before. Hmm. I have actually, yeah, both of your comments actually stirred up so many questions. Let me see if I can. uh, Okay. Um, On the symptom, uh, before we Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, I've always been confused. Maybe other people out there, maybe this is paradoxical, maybe not, but does the symptom stave off madness or is it a creative act of madness? So, it's a kind of maybe chicken and egg question, or um, is it really, is it a signifier? Like in one of the chapters, I think it was Morel's chapter, uh, there was this case of Ilza, someone she calls Ilza, where there's a being a parent, this phrase, or this, this idea, this notion becomes a centum. Um, or is it the act of writing? So in other words, um, you know, without, yeah, just the, the very act of doing something that, that allows one to live, as you put it, uh, Patricia. And um, I, I know that, Manya, I remember in your piece on your very talented schizophrenic patient, you, um, the writer, you said something about delusion being being a work of art. So, I mean, how far do we push this idea to, because um, uh, I, I could see how it could be controversial, like we're glorifying or, or somehow, yes, uh, praising or, um, you know, a state of perhaps distress or... Yeah. Or well, maybe we need to define the terms. Like when we, mm-hmm. I think the notion where we use of art is not art as beaux-arts or classical art, but maybe the idea of art, if we go back to the origin of the world, close to uh, techne know-how. Mm. So more than an artist, as a, an artist we will see in a museum, would be the art of uh, somebody who manages, know, has a know-how about something, and it would be a know-how with one's structure or a know-how with one's unconscious, a way of dealing with, we may do with what one is given one's structure. So in that sense, it requires an artistry and also uh, the idea of uh, 
artifice that is a creation, and in that sense it's an invention. It's something new, unique for each subject that cannot be industrially produced. Mm-hmm. And that's the unique thing of the Santon. And, and we see that in several of the clinical examples in the book where we can pinpoint that it's a solution for that subject in a specific uh, circumstance and given a specific history, structure, situation, conditions, culture, language. Mm-hmm. And maybe Mania wants to, to add something to that. Um, maybe it's the idea that it's a, the, the idea of the know-how with one structure. So as I said before, just because somebody's schizophrenic doesn't mean they're ill. So that would take away the idea that oh, we're, we're glorifying somebody's illness. I mean, and think about the the millions of artists we know about who are miserable. So I'm not sure that that's like the the way to, to think about it. There's, um, in fact, the the one schizophrenic whose work I talk about in the, in the book. Um, he's in, incredibly uh, productive and creative, and most spends 99.9 percent of his life outside of the hospital. You know, so. Mm. Uh, so and and that those those say suppléants or what Lacan calls supplements or like ways of doing something or a know-how allows them not to be ill. Right. Okay. That's actually clarifying. Mm-hmm. And also, I think we we'll, hope to convey with the different essays in the book is challenging the the idea that times oh, this is mad, this is nonsense. What we want to reinstate is uh, the fact that there is a a logic, there is a method in madness, as the saying goes, but that there is also a logical structure. It may be seemingly senseless acts, like what's the the structure or the logic behind maybe a suicide bomber or somebody who is... uh, in a way, drunk in in freedom. I'm uh, mentioning here Nestor Bronstein's piece on uh, right. on the extreme that that picks up on on Lacan's idea that the mad person is the only truly free person. And what kind of freedom are we talking about? In the same way, what, what kind of art are we talking about? And I'm trying to understand the the, the logic that these uh, structures follow. Mm-hmm. In order to, and I think this is the one of the things I find very nice about uh, all the the contributions that are, are part of this book is that they offer elements that are helpful, of course, for the clinician, but that will be of interest for uh, academics, graduate students, but also for the lay, any lay person who is interested in in trying to to figure out what what madness is about. Do, do you think that some of the pieces, some of the chapters, um, mm-hmm. maybe uh, contradict one another a little bit? Because I, I do feel like there there are multiple messages there. Um, like the Brownstein you mentioned uh, says, I think that you can't just go crazy. The other, it's the other who chooses. Is this the, the piece? I think this is the piece that where he says that um, the other chooses for you. It's it's in fact the choice made by the other rather than the subject. At the same time, there seems to be. Um, Something here about, uh, like you said, the radical freedom or, or un, well, or unfreedom of the madman. Uh, right, and, right. and then, and then I think in your intro, you, you too say that madness lurks within all speaking beings. And you've said this in the interviews, you know, that there's a kind of, um, yeah, that we all, when we dream, for example, we're all mad, perhaps. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I guess it goes back to this. Can anyone just go crazy or just some of us or what does it really mean? And, 
is do we want to equate going crazy so you know insanity with madness etc and i i do think that there is a vagueness of categories here maybe a purposeful one and do you think that there that the chapters cohere, or do you think that they sometimes speak to one another and say different things? I guess this is you know it, it also like does Lacan's idea always cohere? <laughs> no, of, of, yeah. of Lacan's idea well, of what psychosis is, right? And remember, mm-hmm. maybe the idea would be also that you know the, the psychotic is spoken by the other, right? And we can say that language is that. I mean, language. I mean, we we make sense of it because we're neurotic. Um, but if you if, if you actually try to think through people's way that they make sense, it's completely mad. Mm-hmm. So then the question, if I follow, what Mania and Anna elicited, perhaps what the book will tell the reader is uh, how come we are not all crazy? <laughs> so what, what happens that only a few? of us may be crazy, not all. But it, it, it's a complicated issue, and you, you raise an, an important point, because uh, there is this kind of paradox that we make unconscious choices, but they are forced choices. So that, that when the psychotic person may be, on the one hand, free, and this is conveyed a little by the paradox of the subtitle, madness, yes, you can't. So what kind of choice is when, yes, you can't. So I think this is a little, the, 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 as Mania was saying, the problem of any speaking being, and some who happen to be neurotic may be more deluded to think that they are awake when they're in fact dreaming, and the mad know they are dreaming while they dream, mm-hmm. and, but then can never wake up. So we, we enter, I think, I wouldn't say that the, the different chapters contradict each other, but they uh, offer a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I would maybe, even, for instance, we mentioned in Nestor Brownson, he, he's very aware of, of, of the implications of this statement of Lacan, that the only free person is the mad person, and yet it's a very peculiar kind of freedom. Yeah. Maybe when you are, yes. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now that when, when if you if he's decide all is all is decided by the big other. If the other recalls language, society. When is not there is I think no case for any uh, human cultural subject when that wouldn't happen. The interesting thing is that some subjects may defend themselves. A better and other wars, and some may be able to escape a sort of structural destiny of madness, as Mania was saying, the mad element of language that, well, happens that some go crazy and others don't. And, and, and we invite the readers to, 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 to figure out why this happens for some and, and what happens when some are mad and yet, and this is uh, presented in, in, in the um, later notion of Lacan when he proposes a new theory of madness that some people manage to avoid that destiny. Mm-hmm. And they manage to create an invention that could allow them to live with madness without uh, extreme suffering, mm-hmm. which is one of the promises uh, as clinicians ourselves, because both Mania and I practice, uh, is the idea of, well, how could you help somebody suffer less and, and, and deal with their structure in a better way, make the 
mm-hmm. better. Marnie, did you want to add something? No, I wanted to ask about the idea of freedom, right? So one of one of the Lacanian ideas is like, why is the madman free, right? It's because he has what Lacan says, the object in his pocket. It's a joke, right? But what he what he means by that is, is I mean, and, and it's funny because I remember working in the hospital and going, what does it mean, like the object in his pocket, right? <laughs> Where is it? And I and and the it's not so much in his pocket. It's a, an expression in French, but it's more the idea that there is no separation from the object. So the reason the madman's free is he doesn't lack anything. I mean, we're we're not free because we lack and we have relations with others, and then we have to worry about them, and we have the law and all of those things that make us uh, function and not function in the world. But if you don't lack anything, um, um, then there's no place to go. Mm. Right? There's no place to be. Lo- you're not looking for something hmm? outside. But that still seems very, very um, a kind of oppressive freedom, if it is a freedom at all. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that, that's the that's kind of the idea. Right? Uh, precisely because it is an oppressive position. What the the essays in the book try to show is that in the face of the void, there could be perhaps something one can do to to maybe create the space where perhaps some some of that void could be breached, that there could be a world when there is a, a gaping hole. Uh-huh. H-O-L-E, as you clarify. <laughs> because there's too much hole, W-H-O-L-E. Mm-hmm. So that, that they, they, I, I think our, our aim with the collection is to... Uh, offered um, the, the work done by, by very important uh, thinkers, clinicians, who can offer new strategies to deal with seemingly unapproachable phenomena, because uh, something can be done nevertheless. Well, you know, I okay, there, there, I have two questions. Let me think. Maybe... Maybe just this first. I remember one of the essays. It maybe might have been the Yankalevich. I'm not sure, but um, uh, it was something. There was a statement like um, that madness is the height of subjectivity or the logical end of subjectivity, and that seemed confusing to me. Actually, uh, do you remember this this kind of quote? Or am I misquoting? That's some ring of. Okay. Do, do you? But it, but it, 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 it could go back to the idea. The utmost point of subjectivity. It was the Van Hula. Sorry. Yes. Ah. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Manya. <laughs> because there's no. Because there's nothing. There's no object separated. So what? We, like if if we're saying subject is like the symbolic and the real, and there's like no. There's there's no. There's nothing that's fallen out from that encounter. Right. Mm-hmm. It would make sense. You're just like. Pure, the, um, um, I mean, Gerard Pommier says to me uh, that the psychotics he treats are the super subjects. Right. Okay. 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 Well, thanks. For uh, and also, the, I think what uh, Van Hule and uh, Fire's piece talks uh, about is that there is something, because they, they their piece works on how subjectivity is constituted as such, they revisit the idea of the mirror stage, mm-hmm. that uh, in a way the, the, the inherent fracture that is part of what subjectivity is made out, that we are all speaking beings, we are all divided beings, that that type of fracture is more explicit in psychosis, which is something already noted by 
by Freud that what he observed is working with uh, psychotic patients is that what would take years and years of explorations and have to be laborly fetched up in neurotics was in psychosis at the surface. Right. At the very, accessible to the very eyes. And it's interesting that in, in if I'm recalling Freud's quote accurately, he talks about visibilities, has to do with the eye, with the gaze, which is precisely what Lacan elaborates when he uh, goes back to the idea, that when he invented the idea of the mirror stage as the, the moment of invention of the ego when the subject is created as such, uh, based on, on an image, on a reflection on a, on a mirror, mm-hmm. and that has to do with the imaginary, the, the gaze, and in psychosis we have that at, at the surface, visible. And, and it's something that also like, uh, returns to, and this is very important because it tells us how important, if we want to know about subjectivity, we need to know about psychosis in order to understand all types of structures, all types of subjects, neurotics, psychotics, perverse. And, and uh, Lacan would call the psychotic the martyr of the unconscious. And, and he's, again, uh, going back to the etymology of martyrs as, as, as a witness, is the one who sees what the subject is about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is what is uh, clinically very helpful, is that we learn a lot uh, about the the subjectivity in general, if we learn about psychosis. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's the Elouche piece. Um, you know, he, he talks about how the structure of uh, transference is always the same, except that the psychotic tries to position himself or is um, yeah, positioned as the subject supposed to know, as in the analyst spot, is, as it were. But I and, think even that... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Anna. Yeah, the idea no, that, yeah, not almost that he's trying to position himself. He mm-hmm. is. He is there, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The analyst shouldn't compete with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is there because the other is always making demands and asking questions. Yeah, that, that they, they have, they have a, a direct line to the big other. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they, 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 they have a lot of... They have, because this is one, maybe one way to, to say it simply would be that a psychotic person does not have the filter that a neurotic person would have. So they have, they, they, they see more, maybe they see too much, and they have access to something without the mediation, the repression, the, all the, the, the filters that you could find in neurosis. And in, in that sense, it's a privileged and difficult perspective to have. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you, you mentioned a little, a little while ago about, uh, you know, helping people who are mad or, or technique, essentially. And there are a few papers, there are a number of papers, actually, in the, in the collection about that. And I'm, I was thinking about, there's a, there's has been, it seems that there's been a debate, correct me if I'm wrong, among Lacanians about how to view the, the so-called uh, new symptoms or new madness that Verhaga uh, chaptered, I think it's called Today's Madness, does not make sense. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone seems to agree or... or, or or most people seem to agree that there are more and more people are exhibiting these these rare psychoses that are actually not so rare. In other words, um, uh, symptoms that don't resolve in classical treatment and that are rooted in the body that aren't symbolized, but rather are kind of direct expressions of anxiety. Um, so, so there's like they appear psychotic, but they they don't uh, they're unaccompanied by hallucinations, paranoia, delusions, and that sort of thing. Um, 
And then there's, and so Verhaga posits this uh, solution or, or a way of dealing with this where he, he seems to stay within the Freudian and, and 1950s Lacanian um, dichotomy of schizophrenia paranoia and adds attachment theory or attachment research to the mix. And he argues that the analyst must enter into a kind of, well, okay, he might deny that he argues this, but I think he argues for that the analyst must enter into a kind of reparenting transference with the analysand and modulate excess jouissance or control the drives or, or, or help the process of creating a delusion to localize or delimit the drives. But um, there's this other position that uh, Jacqueline Miller, it seems, slightly different view, he has a slightly different view, and he describes something he calls ordinary psychosis or untriggered psychosis where he advocates uh, the formation of a kind of makeshift name of the father or master signifier, which seems closer to the Lacan of the 70s, um, the Centome. So the, 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 he emphasizes the creative act of madness. I don't, I don't know if, and I, I seem to think, and please correct me if I've misrepresented the theory at all, but there, there's a, here's my question. I feel like the volume in, in its overarching message moves from actually a sort of Verhaga point of view or the earlier Lacan's, uh, Lacan, Lacanian position on madness or on, yeah, on madness, to this later Lacanian position on madness, the one that maybe is deployed more by Miller. Um, would you agree with this, or, or am I misrepresenting the volume? Patricia? Yeah, uh, I, I was, maybe what uh, we, we, we try precisely to, to uh, avoid being pro or or against in the volume because indeed we have many original thinkers and they develop like Paul Habeck is is a very original thinker and he indeed goes back to a very classical notion that of actual neurosis that was put forward by Freud and seemingly abandoned and he finds it very helpful because he has today patients who do not uh, seem to present classical symptoms, and his argument is that they cannot be treated, they cannot be helped if we use a classical orthodox form of treatment. And that's, in a way, very, very original uh, and also very classical. And, and we could say that even of Lacan himself. Lacan is such a Freudian, and such, so, he's so faithful Freud, he changed Freud. <laughs> so I think if our book is so faithful to Lacan that changes, or so faithful to all the contributors that changes what the contributors are saying themselves and makes them enter a conversation, a dialogue, it's well, well done. Yeah. It's very dialectical. You're being more Lacan exactly. than Lacan himself. That, yeah. Exactly. That we are so faithful that we, we create the, the dialectic within the text. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm fascinated listening to you because one of the things I like of the process of writing is that you think you, you write a book and then you have a reader and you discover you have written a different book. And that's the wonderful thing of, of, of writing that each reader will rewrite the book. And, and and maybe to, to, to perhaps answer to, to the book you have rewritten with your reading is the idea of uh, the Santom, uh, I think it's part of Lacan, the idea of the Santom has to do already with ideas of Freud, as earlier on Emmanuel uh, mentioned, the idea of uh, the delusion as a metaphor is an early Lacanian idea, is already in Freud, and the Santom in a way is not a metaphor, but 
serve the same function of something that in the 50s Lacan described as the name of the father, the Santon could replace the name of the father. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting in the revision, that then the name of the father becomes a symptom. So mm-hmm. Lacan mm-hmm. is still using the Oedipus complex, but in a way where the Oedipus complex is now Freud's symptom and not anymore a something that every person needs to overcome, and then maybe the symptom would be the, the cure. Because, was, for instance, for Freud, the, the then, do we ever overcome the Oedipus complexes? That would be the expected evolution of psychic maturity or perhaps even of a, a, a psychoanalytic treatment. In terms of um, our position with psychosis, if you, once you enter each case of psychosis, and you have it from the opening case of the book with Rolf's floors, a Mm. a wonderful case of uh, the baby diaper man, and Mm. how we close, if we talk about the arc of um, the the last chapter on uh, schizophrenic writing, you you can see that uh, psychosis could be very ordinary and at the same time is extraordinary. <laughs> in the case of Rolf Flores, a homeless man, and in, at the end of the book, we have an extremely intelligent and sophisticated uh, person who produces this amazing play with all these layers of complexity. So if you look closely to psychosis, it's hard not to think that each case of psychosis is extraordinary. And I think what is perhaps important to rescue in Miller's position would be the idea that at times psychosis, and is what uh, Darian Leader calls quiet psychosis, could look very ordinary and still be uh, a very complex structure that is not within the order one would expect if we play with the idea of order and ordinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's important maybe to be aware, again, what we said before, that uh, psychosis is not necessarily nonsensical, it's not necessarily mad. Uh, psychosis could be extreme intelligence, extreme rationality, and uh, extreme adaptation, extreme normalcy, that uh, the, the most normal person could be the most psychotic. <laughs> or ordinary. Oh, well, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, uh, the commonplace. Mm-hmm. In the beginning to, to mention that, you know, much madness is divinest sense and sense is darkest madness. Mm. Right. Um, actually, okay. I I would like to just move. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, so I w- I just wanted to ask a question about the body before we we start to wrap up because there is that one article about Merleau Ponty's phenomenology, and I was thinking mm-hmm. and comparing to the Lacanian position on the body. And as I was reading it, I I really enjoyed uh, that that chapter because. In part because I find that I have a lot of, fr- I often hear from friends who are into phenomenology um, that Lacanians deny the body. And they, they ask me this, like, you know, defend this. You know, Lacanians don't care about the body. I read Bruce Fink and he tells me, no, and the, the body doesn't matter. The gestures don't matter, um, et cetera. And there's this wonderful footnote, actually, in the, um, the Ferrets and Van Hula uh, where they compare the um, Merleau-Ponty and, and Lacan and they say to, oh, so, so Merleau-Ponty believes, uh, he talks about the so-called live body, the pre-objectified body before the mirror. So we, we normally repress this body because we, we think of our body as something, as an object, like in a world of other 
pre, pre-made, uh, or, or already made objects. Anyway, um, so he's, this footnote, maybe I can read the footnote and you guys can comment on it or, or tell me anything about you, you feel about the piece or, or the body and Lacan, but mm-hmm. to the extent that Merleau-Ponty's recourse to the body results in an unproblematic embodied subjectivity, it also represents the unthought remainder that threatens to haunt the temporal logic of natural repression and concomitantly proves to be a serious drawback to his phenomenology. It is precisely at this point that Lacan's Cartesian subjectivity and the real of the body can provide a welcome alternative. I just, yeah. Maybe this uh, comment, and I imagine Mania will have a lot to add, to bring uh, into consideration that there is something a lot to learn about the body precisely through madness. Lacan, for instance, discovers through his reading of Joyce, uh, and, and uh, there, there is a, a, a slight moment of madness, we may call, in, uh, in Lacan himself, because he confused Joyce, the, the author, with uh, the character Stephen in portrait of, a Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. Mm-hmm. But it is a very peculiar kind of body that is often... A body encounter in psychosis is a, a body that can fall, can slip away, like an envelope devoid of its contents. So there is something very prevalent of the experience of the body in the experience of psychosis. And, and I think Lacan is very attentive to that. But the body is already preoccupation for Lacan in the 30s with the creation of the mirror stage because it is we think we have a body and I think language betrays the strange relationship we have with the body we, we are not bodies, we have bodies so we have right. to assume a body uh, that is through the mirror stage through the babies looking at the reflection in the mirror and, and encountering this reflection of a baby held by probably the, the mother or the main caretaker, that will give an illusion of a self before such a thing exists, the illusion of an ego before there is an ego. And that's how an ego is created, as one acquires an ego. And, and, and this is something that Lacan returns to when he's working uh, with Joyce, because he will describe uh, Joyce as somebody without an ego. Mm-hmm. And it's something that Joy was already uh, speculating in his notes, uh, that he was imagining Stephen as a character without an ego. And it's something uh, we see a lot. The body, as an image of the body, is not fully achieving psychosis. It's more the real of the body. We see that reading Schreber, a body that is in a state of putrefaction with the organs, acquire a very peculiar activity and um, a body that can transform in the case of Schreber from being a male body, he becomes a female body and miracles and horrors can take place in that body and, would you and I imagine Mania may have mm-hmm. would yes? you say it's not an integrated body it's not like um, it, it's an a fragmented body. Mm-hmm. But integrated, well, I don't know, an integrated body is also a cancelled body by language Right, mm-hmm. your idea, what an, even the idea of integration, it has to do with a kind of annulling that language functions in neurosis. Right? right. I mean, I think Patricia is right when the body is real. I, I'm thinking of the patient that I wrote about. He once said that um, my body is my soul, mm-hmm. and I, 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 I think that, that ex, ex, I mean, when we think of the soul, we think of some kind of metaphoric thing, right? But uh-huh. I, I, I mean, here. It brings up the question of the other of language, but also the fact that the body is real. 
in psychosis. And, and it goes back to something earlier, and when you mentioned like schizophrenia paranoia, I mean, in paranoia, the mirror stage is made in some way, at, at least attempted, right? In schizophrenia, right. it's not it's not so um, developed. Uh, I mean, the mirror the mirror stage. So, and in the case of the patient where his body is a soul, we can say it's it's more it's definitely a, more on the schizophrenic side. Mm. And and all, I, I'm surprised by this idea of the absence of the body because I'm thinking of the the essays in the collection. The body, I think I, I could see examples of the body in, in so many of the contributions to the collection. <laughs> I, I think in most cases where there is a, a clinical example, something of the body is touched because, uh, as uh, Mania was saying, is in fact the, the body is there. In, 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 in its crude reality as flesh more than as an imaginary value or as a symbolic value. So, I think and, and, and even, yeah, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding where people, because I, what they're, what's lacking in Lacan is this kind of, you know, faith in the body as the locus of truth, as something that speaks to Exactly truth. that. Mm-hmm. That the body, that because it's not so much the body seen by the analyst as the body as expressed by the analysis. So, mm-hmm. and the only way, but this is true of every, so when one goes to the doctor who supposedly would mm-hmm. deal with the real of the body, we need to fill out the form and the doctor may ask, why are you here today? And one starts speaking and describing <laughs> symptoms. It's always, we cannot avoid the traps of language, the, the madness of language, as we were saying earlier on. So it is always within language. And, and I think this is what is great for us, analysts, because we have equivocation as our weapon. And since it's a talk therapy, psychoanalysis will exploit all the equivocal potential of language uh, to, to the benefit of the treatment. It is interesting to know that when someone is uh, psychotic, their relation to language will be a very special one, and that equivocal nature of language will be addressed differently, and will produce different symptoms, and as a result, will produce a different type of body. Mm. Maybe it, it also reminds me of our, our essays in here, we didn't, like, the more, the ones on melancholia, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Because, because the, the, like in, um, I think Russell Griggs. Russell Griggs, yes. Mm-hmm. Right on the, on the, like proximity or the, or the non-abandoned objects, right? So th- those are also ways of addressing the body in the, mel- in the melancholia essays. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and also in Claude Noel's essay about femininity, um, the body's very much addressed. Claude Noel Pickman, yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or oh, even in Richard Boothby. Yeah, I was thinking suicide bomber essay, right? The yeah, exactly. Bomb, suicide bomber. The, the body, the body explodes in, in in the case of a suicide bomber. So, it, it I think is uh, it's interesting to to know that I think there is something very. It's in the front stage, I would say, the body in, in an experience of a, mm-hmm. a psychosis, and and I think in general in psychoanalysis, the the question is that we will not stop. In, in what the analyst may see or may not see about the body. Yeah, I, th- I think what's what, what maybe some people again are looking for is this sort of um, Merleau-Ponty position of the body as constitutive of perception and subjectivity. The, the body is somehow pre pre mirror, and and that there one can access that. You know that that there's actually that that's even possible. Um, yeah, what is the truth? 
the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That one can. Well, I should say that. I mean, you, yes. one could argue psycho, uh, psycho, in psychosis, you do access that, or that's the only thing you have. So, um, anyway, I uh, we should probably wrap up, unfortunately. But um, I wanted before we go, I wanted to ask you about what you're uh, working on, working on now, because I know you two have another volume in the works, right? Together. <laughs> yes, yes. We had a wonderful experience in uh, working together on this collection. We we discovered, uh, at least I will talk for myself, I discovered how, how much fun it is to write with someone else. That <laughs> it was really a, a very different experience that uh, the painful aspect of writing disappeared. It was just the, the, the challenge and the difficulties of the task at hand. That that the overall the process was fun and there was something uh, that was new to discover painless writing I don't know what Maya may ask amazing <laughs> I have to talk to you more about this after the interview yeah Maya <laughs> is this true for you the, too <laughs> yeah yeah and I would say that the the yes you can I mean writing I think uh, writing is a yes you can't right I mean all the time <laughs> and, and maybe maybe the writing together made the yes part larger than the you can't part right. Yeah, what the power of yes more than the power of can't. Yeah. Right, we're, we're working on on a book on uh, that we already have in manuscript form on laughter, uh, and we're very excited about it. it uh, on psychoanalysis and laughter, mm-hmm. uh, and psychoanalysis and comedy, right? And with with reference to laughter, humor, uh, all those parts that we don't that, that we found uh, that there's very little literature on this. Uh, I mean, there's some, but very, very little. And, I mean, of course, the, the classic Freud text on, on jokes and humor, but just about uh, clinical clinical practice, about comedy in general, and also we're, we're trying to think about a new paradigm in our book for psychoanalysis. Um, comedy is a new paradigm for psychoanalysis as opposed to tragedy, as opposed to Oedipus, Hamlet, and Antigone, you know, Lubitsch and uh, yes. Billy Wilder. You're, you're right, though. There isn't a ton on on um, laughter and psychoanalysis. It's true. Um, terrific. What about? Um, I, I know that is is anybody working on also other individual? As are you writing stuff on your own too? Yes, yes, and uh, I am. The, <laughs> that one is. I, I, the, the pain is there on that one because I'm working. I'm completing a manuscript uh, called "Psychoanalysis Needs a Sex Change." His Lacanian approaches to social and sexual difference. That's almost done. So the pain will be over soon, and and uh, we can we, we finish already the, the manuscript on uh, psychoanalysis. Lacan like psychoanalysis and comedy that we are uh, we were uh, saying with Mania we propose a, a paradigm shift that is a, a, a Freudian sleep on a banana peel. <laughs> <laughs> so we, that we we want to we we find more helpful uh, as a clinic like clinical strategy using that of comedy uh, also in terms of a. a because color approach to, I think psychoanalysis has a lot to say about comedy. Um, it's very interesting that in, in tragedy the hero dies, in comedy the hero falls in the soup and survives. <laughs> so maybe with that idea that we can write and survive, <laughs> we will continue with that right. project. Excuse uh, me, hope. <laughs> yes. Exactly. One, one can fall into the soup, but perhaps using more the model of comedy than that of tragedy. Mm. That might be more helpful. 
I can't, I can't, I really can't wait for this. Um, well, th- thank you both so much. Uh, it was, it was really fun and, um, yeah, and I've been, and just to remind everybody, I've been speaking with Patricia Garavici and Manya Steinkohler about Lacan on madness, madness, yes, you can't. Uh, okay, so thanks, thanks to you and thanks to our audience for listening. Until next time, so long. Mm-hmm.